time now for our Defending the First series, where we expose the enemies of the First Amendment, free expression, and free thought. The Media Research Center released a devastating report today documenting the censorship of conservative speech by Silicon Valley's tolerant tech giants. Yo, welcome back to I Americanize, a podcast that explores America's influences. I am Shafi Hussain, and today we're talking about censorship, cancel culture, censoring stuff, pretty much. Today we're discussing censorship in America and its influences with the wonderful University of Massachusetts Amherst history professor Jennifer Frank. You can find Jennifer at Twitter at Jen Frank and make sure to buy her book. It's called Monitoring the Movies. It talks about all things censorship in movies. This episode we talk about censorship, cancel culture and so much more. I hope you guys enjoy the show today. landed in the archives for this particular book that I wrote about motion picture censorship during the silent era is actually not very interesting. I will admit <laughs> that. What I will tell you though is I didn't realize how interested I was in censorship until I found these archives. And I made this connection to what I experienced growing up in the 80s. So go with me on this. Um, as a kid in the 80s, there was um, a lot of concern among politicians and what we sometimes called like do-gooders and reformers around music and music lyrics and videos on MTV, which was brand new. And I remember the Senate hearings around obscene lyrics and Frank Zappa testifying and Dee Snyder and I was entranced. I was about 12 years old and I was like newly interested in music and I thought it was nuts that they were going after like Prince. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, in about 2008 when I was living in Virginia um, that was my first tenure track job after graduate school. I learned that the state of Virginia had had a motion picture censorship board. From like 1922, 20 or 22, I'm super bad with dates, which is embarrassing as a historian. Um, so forgive me. Um, but they had this censorship board from the early 20s until the mid to late 60s. And I had never heard of that. And so when I started digging, it took me back to this organization that existed in New York City in the early 20th century called the National Board of Censorship of Motion Picture. Wow. <laughs> and it was an organization, um, I was familiar with some of their members um, from organizations I had studied from my first book which was about um, mm. undercover investigators in the service of social reform. Right. So I thought there, I, there's a there there, as historians might say, of the archives. 
And what I discovered is this organization in New York um, was founded in 1909, maybe 1908, um, as the National Board of Censorship, but they opposed what they called the legal censorship of motion pictures. Mm. So they did not think that um, the state or a municipally impaneled board should have any say over motion picture content. They said motion pictures are problematic, very early motion pictures, 1910 or so. Um, a lot of them were things like uh, maybe just a minute long clip of a, of a hoochie coochie dance, as it was called. <laughs> um, <laughs> the cinema of attraction. And this organization said, what we need to do is educate producers on what constitutes high quality motion pictures and educate audiences to demand something better than slapstick or cats fighting. That was another big one. <laughs> so they said motion pictures are an art and we can uplift them. If the state gets involved, we will crush this brand new art form. So that was their position. And they were fighting against an even older thread in US culture. And these are the obscenity warriors. So obscenity is the line in a lot of US law between free speech, um, protected speech, free speech, and unprotected speech. So anything okay. can you can you define the two? So what's really um, awesome, I say sarcastically, about obscenity in U.S. law is it's never been defined. It is um, justices for a hundred years have attempted to pin down a definition of obscenity. So um, in the eighteen seventies when the United States adopted its first anti-obscenity law, which was the Comstock law. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I was, I was reading up a timeline on all yes. the things that they have implemented. So when we get the Comstock law in 1873, um, the definition of obscenity is drawn from the United Kingdom. And it says anything that might injure like an innocent viewer or reader would be because they were searching like males without like any kind of uh yes um like without asking for any kind of yes ordinance, right? um the comstock law allowed for postal inspectors which comstock and his agents were to look through mail um that they were concerned would contain obscene material and that ends up getting extended out to encompass um information about birth control and abortion in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and the birth control extends into the 19 teens and 20s. Actually, the American Civil Liberties Union was founded in 1920 in part to protect the right of Americans to have birth control information and legitimate scientific sex education information rather than this like repressed Christian postal inspector yeah that's so funny to me that you could just like look through mails to uh, to see if there's any kind of upset that's like if no one would be able to sext in our culture right now because if there was someone like that who was just in between reading every uh late night text 
um, in between uh, partners. That's so, that's so like, you have to well, go so far. Well, there have been those cases that's though so of um, child pornography right. where mm. under, under age ch- children, teens have sent images of themselves to maybe a 19 year old mm. partner. And then and in right. order to like suppress that relationship and I'm not trying to weigh in on the, the morality of that. <laughs> but teenagers, you know, have found right. themselves guilty of child pornography for distributing pictures of themselves. Oh wow, that's 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 I don't know what to say. Well, it's I think it's your picture. It's your own. So you so I didn't know that was a thing that if I was sending out a picture, I would be if you were underage. in trouble. Underage, I would be in trouble. Yeah, which I'm not. So that's good. And the thing is, it it also points up that a lot of these decisions are made by individual judges mm. at the state level, mm. right? So it can vary dramatically right yeah because when i was looking through like the history of censorship in america like the first thing that i read was the um i think 1798 when our president um adam was trying to implement a law that bans you from criticizing a government official i think that's what um that's the start right the the zanger trial the john peter zanger yeah yeah yeah. and and then and then i think a few people got arrested but jefferson who came in uh, freed them they're like this is crazy like what are we doing they should be protected under uh the uh free speech so what is i guess like you know you 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 mentioned that obscenity is not defined and there's two kind or there's one one is free speech and the other is unprotected speech why is there such a um pushback towards uh, i guess you know i, I kind of understand the answer it's like you know if you are if you are someone who wants to remain in power obviously you don't want anyone to talk ill off you and there's always a pushback of trying to censor people but has that been throughout throughout our um, history no um and that's something that i think is really interesting about the history of the first amendment and the history of censorship is that it's been this um like continual negotiation and renegotiation across time um so even so this is not not my let me preface this by saying this is not my area of expertise but um censorship of newspapers was permitted or it was not considered unconstitutional until about 1930 in a Supreme Court case called Near versus Minnesota, I think. Um, but that's all to say that sitting here in 2021, we think that the government cannot censor newspapers and they can't, but that has been fought in the courts over time. Um, same thing for obscenity. Um, definitions of obscenity were renegotiated over time. In the mid to late 60s, these six states had motion picture censorship boards and they were done away with by the Supreme Court uh, because by that point in time, the movies were an accepted feature of American life. People were no longer like deeply freaked out about their ability to like ruin children's minds. And so we start to see that um, the definition of obscenity becomes more expansive. And they institute this three pronged test to determine if something is obscene. 
And um, so it's still in use today. And I'm actually going to read it because I don't want to get this wrong. So in Miller, California, in 1973, they established the three-tiered Miller test to determine obscenity and thus that which is not protected and making this distinction between obscene and erotic. Erotic is protected by the First Amendment. So the three-pronged Miller test says, um, does the average person applying contemporary community standards find that the work taken as a whole appears, appeals to the prurient interests? Does the work depict or describe in a patently offensive way sexual conduct specifically defined by the applicable state law? And three, whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific so if somebody were to um, try to um, suppress the circulation of a film or let's say published short story, um, they would seek an injunction in a court and they would have to demonstrate that it met those three conditions. It was offensive by community standards. It only appealed to the prurient or base sexual interests and that it had no redeeming artistic, literary, scientific, political value. Right. So like time and time again, we're seeing, you know, like I, I guess at least when I look through the history of it, oh, there's always been the start where they're like, oh, let's let's ban this part of the movie. Let's ban this book. Let's, and then when video games started coming out, they're like, oh, let's, let's give them some kind of a rating if we want to publish this to the kids. Um, what what parallels do you see between that um, history and today? Now that we are talking about you know cancel culture being a thing, and you know a lot of colleges, I think students in the colleges, there's obviously you know pro free speech, and there's also burning buildings in different places. Like, what is your take on how we navigate that space? So. Um... I, I going to like the rating of video games. Um, this is part of a of a long history that American entertainment industries have taken in order to try to prevent government censorship. So we don't have government censorship of motion pictures, comic books music or video games. But what we do have are these really strictly um, controlled production and distribution networks that function as censorship. And this goes back to the organization that I studied. Um, they ended up failing and um, the motion picture producers and distributors of America win. They win this fight in the 1920s and they end up creating what we know as the Hayes Code, which determined what could be shown on screen. It was established in the 1930s and it persisted and it still persists in some way or other. And what it is, it's an, in, it's an agreement within the industry, the motion picture industry, 
that you will not show certain things. So for example, if you think about um, movies and TV shows in the 1950s, they never showed a couple in the same bed. Oh. The married couple would be in separate beds. Right. That's a legacy of this Hayes Code or this motion mm. picture production code. It's also nice that they have two different bedrooms. It must be nice. <laughs> well, and it just raised so many questions, right? Yeah. Like I remember watching I Love Lucy and I'm like, they have a baby, <laughs> but they sleep in different beds. And then I was like, why don't my parents sleep in different beds? It was just very uncomfortable. Of course. Like when I was, for the longest time, before I learned about reproduction, I thought... Because like in Bang in where I'm from Bangladesh, the movies are also like heavily censored, right? Yeah. So it was always they would get married and there would be a flower on screen and there was a baby in the next scene. I'm like, what is the deal? Like, do you just say I do and a baby pops out? Like, how does this happen? I was so confused. Have you ever seen the Naked Gun movies with Leslie Nielsen? No, I haven't. Oh my god! I have to. Like you have, I have to. to look into. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there's this scene where he's like falling in love with Priscilla Presley, and then they mm. spoof this element of Hayes Code era films, right? So they fall mm. in love, and then they'll show fireworks, a train right. going through a tunnel, the space shuttle <laughs> taking off, right? Nice, nice. And that is pulling on these old tropes that directors used to signify sex mm. to their right. audience. Okay. So in 1968, the Motion Picture um, Association of America adopted the Motion Picture Ratings Code that we have today, mm. the G, P, G, and R. And it expanded in the 80s um, and it, it changed again in the early 90s. Like they added PG 13, maybe in mm. the late 80s. But again, the way that the MPAA functions and the way that production and distribution functions in the United States is if you make a movie and you want it to be distributed, right? Mm. So that it shows up in AMC theaters, it gets picked mm. up by Cinemark. Yeah. You still have to kind of abide by this code and submit your movie to the ratings agent. And so if they say, we're sorry, this is an X-rated film and these are the five offensive scenes, if a director doesn't take out those scenes, they don't get a rating and they don't get distribution. Oh, wow. So it's not legal censorship, but it certainly limits what gets into production. Okay. And so this is something that targeted films with like gay and queer content mm. in the last 25 years, for example. Right, right. And so um, the recording industry of America uh, adopted the so-called tipper sticker, um, mm -hmm. the explicit lyrics parental advisory, in a similar move. If we adopt a rating system similar to what the movies use, we can mm -hmm. forestall government interference. Okay. And then video games created the entertainment, it's the ES. Entertainment Software Ratings Board in the 90s yeah. modeled on these other organizations. Okay. But what I think is particularly like nefarious about the MPAA <laughs> is that they require you, if you're invited to serve on their ratings board, so you're watching the movies and offering your input on what should be um, 
censored out. Yeah. You have to be a parent. Oh. You have to be a parent. Mm. And so what this goes to, I think, because we see it with the Parents Music Resource Center and the ESRB, mm. is everything is shaped around, is this piece of culture suitable for children? Okay. But not all culture is suitable for children. Right. And it's not, in my opinion, it is not the job of the government or the motion picture industry Hmm. to say what can be produced or distributed. Right. It should be the job of parents. Yeah. To say, no, Johnny, you can't see the (laughs) Pinkfall murder movie. Right. And this organization I studied that was founded in 1909 had the same argument. Okay. We shouldn't peddle to parents because it will infantilize our culture. Mm. I don't know. I don't know uh, do, uh, if this is a too personal of a question, but do you have kids or nephews? And no. <laughs> other. Nope. I'm just a single queer lady who thinks that I have I have a lot of radical opinions. I love it. Uh, that's the best. That's the best kind of opinions. So how does that, how does this apply today? I guess like, you know, you, you see you're, you're sitting at home and you see, you know, Twitter um, trying to ban people from their platforms or we still have people like Dr. Seuss was on the news. Their books are trying to, they're trying to get rid of his book. So like, what is your take as a historian versus a, versus a citizen of this country? Right. So I think that this whole flap around like cancel culture and Twitter is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that like free speech and the First Amendment function, right? Mm. Free speech and the First Amendment says the government cannot interfere and censor your speech. Right. So if Twitter says, here are four things that we are no longer going to support on our platform, that's not censorship, right? Right. It's because this is a private corporation. Of course. Um, which also has, you know, terms of service and all of that. So hmm. I, um, the people who are being like canceled, right, on Twitter <laughs> are, are people who have enormous platforms, right? Right, Like Brett Stevens of the New York Times or Barry Weiss, formerly of the New York Times. These people are not being canceled by the government. Right, right, right. What's happening and what's been happening since I was in high school in the 90s is just this Um, what I see as a historian now is this ongoing struggle in U.S. culture between those who are conservative. And what I mean by that is they want to conserve a particular older style of arranging and ordering society Mm. versus progressives who are saying things are changing. Demographics are changing. Right? right and come with us or get left behind yeah so when people who want to say things like well i can't think of any good examples right now <laughs> but when twitter you know if twitter comes for you and says you know you've done something offensive 
Hmm. You either own up to that and listen and try to grow and understand, or you dig in your heels and say, I'm being oppressed. So one thing I like to point out to my students is if censorship is the government interfering with your right to express yourself, what happens then when we look at the civil rights protests of this summer? When we look at like Occupy Wall Street and how those social movements for change, for serious far reaching change were put down by agents of the state in the form of the police. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's what you would call a uh, government trying to interfere in free speech. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. That's f- there's there, there's so many questions that come to my mind when you when you just you know talked about like private organization trying to you know impede on you know whatever whatever their they have their own set of rules and you obviously got to follow those if not they have the right to kick you out and that's you know all good um but when it comes to i guess you know we talked about like the idea of um using like you mentioned the idea of using you know police force right um where so how how do we i guess fight back against that like what are the what are the rules or laws in place that helps the people who are trying to create this kind of change because i don't think a lot of people know what to do in situations like that because they don't probably have the knowledge of what the right thing to do is oh boy that's um that's a pretty deep question and um (laughs) There is a part of me, and I, and I say this from time to time, I have said this from time to time in my classrooms. Like I reached this point of exasperation where I tell my <laughs> students like, as Americans, we're actually not as free mm. as they claim we are mm. or tell us we are. And okay. I base this on my own experience Um, So you had asked me earlier, like, how did I get around to all of this? And honestly, like, a lot of my, um, my politics informs my scholarship. And a lot of that was informed by living in Rudy Giuliani's New York. (laughs) And particularly after 9-11. And experiencing like the police repression of protests. Right. um, Under the guise of like, terrorism right of course yeah. so i had lived there for nine years and i felt it change over time right one of my first protests in new york was after um, the murder of amadou diallo and i did not get beat up at that protest but by 2003 five years later protesting the invasion of iraq like i was almost trampled by a police horse and they started putting up what they called free speech zones for protests. So there was this like increasing repression. But at the same time, I was studying the period of 1890, which was the boom of like industrialization and immigration to the United States to my interest end around 1929. (laughs) But in any event, I bring that up because I learned that during um, World War I, there was enormous political repression 
of dissenting opinions. Before that, there was enormous police oppression, repression of labor strikes, right? So there ha the police have existed as a force to support the interests of capital <laughs> and oppress workers. Like it's just true, right? Um, and anytime any kind of socialism or communism bubbles up, this was true in the, you know, 110 years ago, it's true now, you see a repression of that. Mm. You, you say that, you know, they, we're not free as they claim. What is a country that you would model it after? Dude, I don't know. <laughs> right, because... Um, Sometimes I look at the way American history is taught. I look at the way I was taught American history and I, I was taught propaganda. Okay. <laughs> Tell I, us about it. Well, but when, because when I began to study history as a graduate student, I was like, you know, they tell us that like, the 13th amendment freed the slaves and the 14th amendment made everybody citizens. <laughs> they don't tell you about like the wave of violence mm. for 50 years right, that was like right. enacted against black people mm. i didn't learn about japanese internment okay until graduate school wow i um i didn't learn anything about native americans mm. they were always talked about as like people who once existed here <laughs> It's like your great grandfather. He was around. We never saw him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. Mm. And my family, I won't get too deep into it, but like my my mom's side of the family, well, maybe I will. <laughs> I'm like third generation American. Um Sicilian on one side and Polish <laughs> on the other. And you know, I always heard from my mother like how difficult it was for them being Sicilian. Mm that they were not considered white, that they, you know, they changed their names, all this work to Americanize, right? Of course. And like, what kind of violence is that? Right. To ask everybody, like, become white, or right. you're going to be treated the way we treat black people. Yeah, you know, when they talk about America as a melting pot, it's not melting if I'm the only one who's melting. You're not melting. I have to learn what you're doing. You're not, you don't know Bangla you know it's not a melting pot yes yes and i always laugh about this but some educators are like we can no longer use the metaphor of the melting pot for exactly this reason and they're saying so now we should use the metaphor of the tossed salad and i'm like you try standing in front of a bunch of 21 year olds and talking about yeah. tossed salad yeah if, if if you have kale in it they'll be fine with it our 21 year olds love kale now um but yeah you talked about you talked about that and I, when i was looking up stuff about the, for this episode i learned about the war powers act in of 1941 which which made sure that you cannot um put pictures of dead troops or talk ill about the u.s government which goes hand in hand with you know all the repression like whenever like the 1918 sedition act by um woodrow wilson yeah. was the same thing right you're trying to just uh, make sure that nothing bad comes out of um the press about yes. the government power yes 
And that's the same thing that I think we tried last year when, I guess, I don't know if there is any similarities with, you know, trying to just portray free media as fake news. That was, so I still don't have like the distance from everything to to com- comment on that in a deep way, but I thought that the disinformation campaign and the deep work that went into discrediting even creditable, venerable news outlets was profoundly dangerous. Like really, really scary. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, we, we, we I'm a huge fan of... Um, stand-up comedy because i do it and you know one of the first things when you start doing stand-up you learn about lenny bruce and george carlin and you know they're going to court about the seven dirty words being aired and lenny bruce obviously faced jail time for uh, for he spent four months just to uh, because he said something that um was obscene considered obscene what 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 do you know about those cases and what can you share about them Lenny Bruce is so interesting to me um, because, so I really have tried to teach about Lenny Bruce, but it's so interesting because my students don't think he's funny. And like, he's like, he, in 2021, he's kind of not funny. You wouldn't, I wouldn't put on a Lenny Bruce album and be like, right, right. He's of the times. He is such a product of his time. And I think that's, what's really significant about him. Um, Particularly, you know, so he was poking at white middle-class suburban mores, Mm -hmm. right? Like he looked at post-World War II American culture and was like, this is bullshit. Mm. Um, and I think that he was, he was challenging the status quo in the same way that like the beat poets were, you know, the beat poets like Kerouac and Ginsburg also Mm. Fairland, Fairland Getty was, he just died. Right. But they were all kind of, um, the target of the same kind of ire. Mm. You are challenging the beats were challenging sexual mores. When I think about Lenny Bruce, I think about his um, his N-word sketch mm. and the way, and his sketches about um, sort of parodying white, well-meaning middle-class liberals' reactions to Black people. Um, yeah, so like, you know, Len- Lenny Bruce obviously was the first mover in that um he kind of pushed pushed for being able to i guess say whatever he wanted on on stage and george carlin did the same thing when his seven dirty words was aired but then now obviously like you said like if you put their albums it might not be something that people would want to listen at all because you know times have changed and we made progress in the things that we want 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 to live in a kinder world and maybe words do mean a lot so how do you i guess rectify the two right because you have one one era where 
we like even if I look at Lenny Bruce doing that, I was like, oh, he took one for the team. But at the same time, maybe some of the things he said, I don't really find amenable and would not enjoy when if I was at the club. So how do you, I guess, uh, resolve that conflict? So um, I think the, I'm going to answer this with a question, um, which mm. is a super obnoxious thing to do. <laughs> but I think it like loops back around to what is the role of the comedian in society? Mm. And mm. I kind of think <laughs> that like, Lenny Bruce and George Carlin, and then um, Richard Pryor, mm. really like expose America's dark side. Okay. And I think that that in part is the role, can be the role of comedy, mm. right? It's not just to entertain, but to say, right? Look at what, look at what is under this rock. Right, right, right. And, um, so I think that like comedians and metal guitar players are people <laughs> who can like change society. Yeah. Um, by asking you to, by asking one to sort of open up what you consider the spectrum of art, music or acceptable public utterances. Right. So, you know, we, we talked about, you know, comedy, movies, and there's so many different Supreme Court cases tied to those. Is there one in particular that you found to be the most interesting? There's a series of cases. So there's one. Now I'm going to have to look this up super quick, but yes, there's one that's really interesting and it's called the Miracle Decision. Because mm. the first, I think the first uh, Supreme Court case about a movie was in Ohio in 1915, and there was so many rever When I was lo researching about it, there's like so many reversals, right? Yeah. And also, like Lenny Bruce got um, posthumously. What did he get? He got pardoned. Yes, he got he got pardoned, right? Yeah, yeah. Pardoned him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the one, and that that's like that's that's been the case with so many of the cases that it gets overruled. But what my question is, I guess, is if you have you know free speech as the first amendment why was it so difficult for the lawyers who were trying to i guess fight for um having those things pub published yeah so that goes back to that first supreme court case the 1915 one which is the mutual decision mm. and that mm. is really interesting um because um the 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 body was called the industrial commission of ohio and it established itself as the censor for all movies to be shown in the state of Ohio. The Mutual Film Corporation was distributing and exhibiting movies in Ohio. And this industrial commission was censoring newsreels that showed um, labor strikes that were favorable to the workers. So Mutual sues Ohio. It goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rules that because motion pictures are exhibited primarily as a business, they are not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, they are not art, they are not press, they are conducted solely for profit. 
Okay. So from that point, that was the sort of kickoff. And by 1922, six U.S. states had their own state censorship boards. Mm. And Congress had considered establishing a federal censorship board like four times. Mm. Then the motion picture industry steps in and they're like, no, no, we got this. And then in the 50s and into the 60s, so this is probably the research you saw, there were a whole bunch of cases where individual film exhibitors, people who own theaters, who had been arrested for showing something that was considered obscene, appealed to the Supreme Court. And this miracle decision um, was in the early 50s in New York state. And it's one of the cases that started to chip away at the New York state board of censors, which was um, particularly concerned with um, sexuality, but also um, blasphemy towards Catholics. Mm. And this film was an Italian film that, It was an Italian film, and one of the characters was supposed to be a mentally deranged Virgin Mary. Mm. And the New York State Board of Censors were like, this is blasphemous. You cannot show this. Right, right, right. Goes to the Supreme Court, and it starts to peel back some Mm. some of the restrictions. So again, it's like... um, In the U.S., you could make any kind of crazy movie that you wanted to. Mm. You just can't show it anywhere. (laughs) It's the showing of it. It is the sharing of it. It is the uttering it into public air in front of other Mm. people that can get you in trouble. Right. Because it's believed to have some kind of an impact on the other person. And that's what you can be held responsible. Is there American laws or like the free speech itself that influences other parts of the globe? Like what is America so American about this that kind of propagates throughout the globe? Yeah. Um, so one, one part of the answer I want to give you is that in the early 20th century, when the United States was figuring out how to censor movies, um, Great Britain established its British Board of Censors. Mm. Australia had a Board of Censors. Uh, Norway and Sweden had their own Boards of Censors. So it was an idea that was like sweeping the globe. (laughs) In the first moment, of like mass immigration and demographic change. So I always see those things as like kind of combined. When when society is in flux in one way or another, it's awfully nice to pass a law like censoring movies. It's the kind of moral panic response. We'll censor movies that way, you know, Children don't get ideas about interracial relationships, yeah. like things like that. Yeah, because interracial marriages got legalized, what, 1967 in Loving versus Virginia, right? That right. was like six, 60 years ago. Yeah. 
not not too not too far back and i know you i know i, I don't know if you look at the comic books that you mentioned i think um there was uh there was an event in 1954 when they were trying to ban batman and robin yes. and they thought wonder woman was a lesbian woman I, that's i've never heard that before that's the first time i'm hearing it is that actually a thing i don't know Mm. But I I mean I do know though that and that in 1954 um comic book publishers banded together and came up with this comics code authority. And much like the Motion Picture Association of America's rating system, the comics code had a whole series of things that you couldn't show in they would not assign the seal and publish your comic if you showed yeah gay relationships and a handful of other outlawed things and that started to loosen up in the late 60s and early 70s with the growth of underground comics and underground comic artists so like speakeasy for comic books yeah they were like i'm not going to publish with marvel i'm going to like self publish and sell this in this bookstore mm so like the ebook of amazon was back in the 70s they're like i'm just yeah, going to yeah kind of do it myself that's great. But like another way that America um I think influences other cultures with its culture of censorship is so many American movies are exported. Right? The sort of global reach of Hollywood. But all of those things that Hollywood doesn't allow to be shown. So there's a very ma- managed curated product that gets that gets exported so i have a question on that so when did the adult movie industry rise to the surface because i would i would assume there would be a lot of backlash against that yeah so the um adult movies start to rise and expand in the mid to late 60s so in this era when um the New York State Board of Censors comes to an end. There's um, a Supreme Court case that brings the Maryland Board of Censors to an end. Then you start to see the release and distribution of X through triple X movies in places like Times Square, downtown Los Angeles, and This coincides with the sexual revolution nationwide. So in the late 60s and into the early 70s, for certain kinds of liberal middle to upper class married couples, it was considered cool to like take the train from Greenwich, Connecticut down to Times Square and grab a porn together. And um, And you also start to see that producers of adult films in that time period try to to create storylines, a narrative that might appeal to an audience rather than a sad, lonely guy in a booth. (laughs) Right, right, right. So they started like hiring writers at the time. They're like, we need better, better ending. Plot. Plot, yeah. And so um, one of the, the sort of early blockbuster um, adult films was um, Deep Throat with Linda Lovelace Marciano. 
and there was um there was a pretty good documentary about that she was like abused by the man who made the movie who was like also her boyfriend like it's just awful um debbie does dallas is another one of those kind of like uh narratives yeah that's trying to present porn as this kind of like fun thing that you go and see with your friends right right so um a few last questions how would you personally at this you know day and age i guess what would be your ideal scenario regarding cancel culture or censorship and how what can we do to do better as a society yeah um so i think our culture is at is at a crossroads honestly and um i really think that like cancel culture the the events that sort of coalesce under that umbrella are about so look i actually think we need to have these fights in public right like i think that you should line up david brooks and brett stevens and have them like fight with people on the other side because it's through this kind of arguing that we renegotiate the social rules that we're all going to function under so what disturbs me more than like somebody getting kicked off Twitter for being a white supremacist or like, you know, is there was not a strong enough rebuke of January 6th. That insurrection is not protected by the First Amendment. It is not protected by any of the laws of the United States. And actually that is what needs to be called out, canceled and rejected. If the United States does not want to, to be a white supremacist patriarchy, it needs to reject that. And this is the kind of death struggle, I think that the culture is in right now. Right, right, right. And, and so you're very right. Like obviously, you know, any, I think there was like a, a philosopher, I forget his name, but he, with any, like, if you want to make progress, you have to regress a bit to make real progress. I forget the name, but you, you, you take two steps forward and one step backwards. And that's, it's always slow progress, but it's in the right direction because you have people who would not want you to do it, but that's good because you debate and you yeah. um, try to have a discourse about it. So that's, that's good. So I guess, um, how do you see in the if you had to predict the next 50 100 years like where do you see our society to go towards um i've been feeling pretty pessimistic about <laughs> that kind of thing you look too happy to be pessimistic you're like such a uh, joyful person yeah i'm one of those people who like laughs when they're uncomfortable um <laughs> so like if we all survive the pandemic and there isn't like global climate catastrophe that wipes us all out, I would really hope um, that the United States and other leading democracies would continue to embrace demographic change and, you know, a multicultural ruling class. 
<laughs> I mean, look, I really think that at the very least they need to embrace the policies of like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal and like really invest in public education and public infrastructure and universal health care in order to kind of lift everybody up and keep things moving forward. Um, I don't know, maybe open the borders, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> End all the wars, it. apologize for slavery. <laughs> How do you do an official apology, I guess? Like who's gonna go on TV and be like, yeah, this is it would be it would be the president um yeah. and or Congress. every time you get a, every time you get a new president you should like they're like i start with an apology <laughs> yeah at the very least yeah. right right um i mean they apologized I, for japanese internment and paid survivors in right. the 80s right right they haven't said anything about like native dispossession or slavery why why is that like because we are very aware of this thing now it's not like no one knows about it so why i know or is it too late or is it too late to like do something about it or just like i don't um, know stop? and like i actually think that that's this you know like i said this struggle that we're in because like thinking about the cancel culture thing i just remembered like the 1619 project that the new york times put out which was this really creative and powerful reorienting of the American founding historical narrative, right? And we saw such a backlash, almost entirely from white men, some of whom are very well-established historians. But their critiques, you know, even these very well-established historians could not accept that in that the foundation of the United States economy is slavery. They can't, they can't, they can't just say that with their whole chest, right? They have to be like, but in this one county in Rhode Island. <laughs> right? And it's like, I think that I'm so okay. Here's where I'm optimistic. My students get it. And my students have been getting it for 15 years. So maybe by the time some of these dinosaurs have moved on to their next phase, maybe everybody who's sitting around the table gets it. Yeah, but that's the that's the beauty of death. It's purges old ideas. You know, I love it. It's the greatest equalizer. No one can no one can escape it. Um but but I wanted to thank you so much for joining the pod and before we leave uh final thoughts and books you wanted to share with the with the people who are listening and where they can find you yeah so um if anybody is interested in the motion picture association of america and their ratings code i always recommend um, a documentary called this film is not yet rated uh, by Kirby Dick, who's an amazing documentary filmmaker, um, made the Allen versus Pharaoh documentary. Um, so I recommend this film is not yet rated. You can pick up my book from the University of Texas Press. It's called Monitoring the Movies, the Fight Against Film Censorship in the Early 20th Century. And I'm at Twitter, on Twitter, at Jen Frank. And I tweet my rage about the police and the UMass administration <laughs> frequency. Thank you. This is super fun. I enjoyed it. 
that's the end of the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. If you like the show, you can support it by leaving an Apple review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shafi Stands Up on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Shafi Hussain. There's some sketches I have. They're fun. I enjoyed making them. And a shout out to the podcast sponsor, Tiny Cupboard. They have some amazing virtual stand-up shows you can check out at thetinycupboard.com. Thank you so much for listening.